Well, if you have a Bible with you, why don't you open it up? Exodus chapter three, Exodus chapter three. We're starting a new series today on the life of Moses. And I love Moses' life, one of my favorite characters in the scripture. And if I was to ask you the following question, I'd like you to think about your response. As a matter of fact, I want you, you're gonna tell, up, tell the person next to you your guess to the following question. If you had to pick the decade of your life that is the most spiritually fruitful, most spiritually productive decade of your life. Turn to the person next to you and tell them what decade you think that is. Take a guess, that's okay, you can be wrong. The most spiritually productive decade of your life. Number one. The most productive decade of your life is your 60s. Anybody guess 60s in the room? Nice, 60s. Second most productive decade of your life, your 70s. Feeling really good right now, aren't you? Third most productive decade of your life, your 50s. Think about that now. 60s, 70s, 50s, top three most spiritually fruitful decades of your life. You know, that's quite a different view than our culture has on aging. So do you know that our government, the Social Security Administration, has a term called the FRA, Do you know what that means? Those of you in HR know all about this. The FRA means your full retirement age. Do you know what they've determined your FRA number is? Depending on the year you're born. It's 66 or 67. So it's the government's way of saying, put a fork in it, you're toast, you're done. At 66, 67, you're your FRA. In the economy of God, God's administration says, you're just at your peak How about that? So the Social Security Administration says, well, head down to the Gulf of Mexico and collect some seashells, you know, cash in on the pension, and God's saying, hey, you're at maximum kingdom productivity when you meet the mid-60s. And I can't think of a character in the scripture that represents this reality more. Than the life of Moses. With Moses' life, as we'll see, he's the epitome of increasing age, increasing kingdom fruitfulness. So if you come in this morning and you feel like, you know, ever since I pushed past 30, you know, when you get past 30 in our culture today, they just say, oh, you've lost a step. You know, past 30, you're kind of, oh, you're out of the mix. You're over the hill. You know, you get past 30 in our culture. Ah, you're just, you know, you just kind of need to coast from then on. I'm so thankful God has a little different view of our aging reality. So if you've come in and think, you know, somewhere this whole thing has bypassed you and just let's leave it to the younger folks, God's got a little different perspective to share through the life of Moses, I think. So I put at the top of your notes, if you haven't pulled out your note sheet yet, pull that out or pull up the app and you can find the notes in there. I put 
a little summary of Moses' life, I want you to think of Moses in three different stages of 40-year increments. So the first 40 years of Moses' life could be classified as this way. Basically, his years in Egypt. He grew up in a palace in Egypt, affluent, well-provided for, well-cared for his first 40 years. That's chapter 1 and 2 in Exodus. His second 40 years, he made some really poor choices, and he had to run for his life. And I put the second 40 years, it would be kind of 40 years of obscurity in Midian. In a moment, you'll see a map here, and you'll get a little geographic context. But in Midian, okay, so first 40 in Egypt, second 40, so 40 to 80, he's in Midian in mostly obscurity. Raising family, caring for the flock, wandering around the deserts of Midian. So you basically got the first 80 years of Moses' life in one and a half pages in your scripture. That's chapter one and two. The last 40-year window from 80 to 120, you have 135 chapters of Moses' life. From Exodus 3 to Deuteronomy 34, his third era of his life. 80 to 120. So if you're wanting to pick up stakes and coast in, let's finish more like Jesse Bomer type, right? She's 97 and she was still on it, right? Jesse, as soon as she's physically able, she was strolling in the house of God. She was still praying. She was still engaged in God's mission in the world. She was much more going the Moses route with aging, right? With aging comes increasing spiritual productivity and fruitfulness. Listen to how D.L. Moody put it this way. Here's, what, here's how he summarized Moses' life. I put this quote in your notes. Moses spent his first 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent his second 40 years learning he was nobody, He spent his third 40 years discovering what God can do with a nobody. Amen to that, right? So here's the context of Moses' entry into God's story. Moses wasn't looking for something to do for God. He kind of had given up on himself. Anybody recognize that? Just when you give up on yourself, you know who hasn't given up on you? God hasn't given up on you. God's going to continue to come for you. You might give up on you. Other people might give up on you. I can guarantee you who's not giving up on you, and that's the God of Moses. He's not giving up on us. So here's the context. Moses' people, the Israelites, are 400 years in Egypt. Here's a map of where they are, okay? So give you a little geographic context. I put it in your notes there as well. So they're intended to be in the land of Israel, the promised land. That's where their long-term home is. They're 400 miles south and west in the land of Egypt. Mount Sinai, or in your scripture, is going to be called the Mount of Horeb, is Mount Sinai there. So it's a little bit south and east of where Egypt is. You see that? So geographically, get a lay of the land there of where the story's taking place. So God's people are down in Egypt. Why? Because there was a massive famine in the land up in Israel. There was no food left up there. So they retreated down to Egypt. Why did they go down to Egypt? Because the end of the book of Exodus says God put his man there named Joseph. Joseph was in a leadership position in the country of Egypt. Shocker. Handling the distribution of food. You want a good picture of God's sovereignty? Read the latter section of Genesis and the opening part of Exodus. And you wonder, who's really running this world and everything in it? Make no mistake about it, the sovereign Lord is going to get 
done what he wants to get done in this world. And he puts Joseph exactly where he needs Joseph because he knows his people are going to need some food. The people of God go down to Egypt to get some food. Joseph provides the food for them. They have kind of a big family reunion, a big reconciliation time, end of the book of Genesis. And then Joseph passes away. And the Egyptian leadership passes away. And they lose sight of the favor that God has had upon their nation by being hospitable to the Israelites. So the Israelites go from being welcomed guests in Egypt to being enslaved laborers. They multiply, they grow, they're fruitful. There's a lot of them. So the Egyptians look out, new leadership, long since forgot who Joseph is and all of those things. New leadership looks out and goes, boy, there's a lot of free labor right there called the Jewish people. Let's enslave them and draft them in. They're not for being welcomed guests anymore. So now they're enslaved laborers. And God actually predicted this many years before. So Genesis 15, 13, here's what the Lord said several hundred years before this instance. God said to Abraham, who's Abraham? He's the father of this nation. He says, hey, there's a nation gonna be built through your lineage, Abraham. The Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. Exodus Chapter 1 and 2 is your kind of fulfillment of that statement from the Lord in Genesis 15. They've been there for 400 years. And what are they doing for the 400 years? Which, by the way, this is where the book of Exodus gets its name. It, the word Exodus means exit or to depart, to leave. So Exodus is the story of how God's going to get his people from Egypt back to the promised land. And this is where Moses comes into the story. God says, I got a plan. My people's long-term destiny is not Egypt. It's 400 years. That's plenty long in our eyes. But in God's perspective, that's been long enough. He said 400 years, and now we're gonna move them back up. And this is where we see chapter two now. Here's the closing words of chapter two, verse 23 and following. Here's the summary of this period, during that long period. Don't you love it when the Bible underestimates phrases like this? During that long period. So your definition of long period and mine, my long period might be, boy, that's a long month, Lord. That's a long year, Lord. Or maybe a long decade, Lord. That little phrase right there, how many years does that represent? 400 years. God's timetable is much different than ours. And generally speaking, we're always going to view his timetable as longer and slower than we prefer. And the sooner we get a hold of that in the relationship, the smoother the relationship's going to go. So a little understatement, I think, there. I read that, and I'm like, really, Lord? During that long period, you can put a little note in your Bible, 400 years, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So you see, they're crying out. They're groaning. God's hearing their cries. He's like, I hear your cries. I'm concerned about your suffering. I'm going to step in and do something about this. Enter Moses. Age 80. 80-year-old Moses tending the flock, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, that's Sinai, the mountain of God. 
There an angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. You might want to underline that. It did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. You can actually go to the monastery of St. Catherine in the middle of the desert of Sinai today, and you can see the bush that they believe has been preserved, that they believe was the actual bush that the fuelless fire appeared in. Here's a picture of it. You can go there. And that's the, that's the name, the proper name of the plant, the Rubus Sanctus. So you follow in the storyline here. Moses is not out fasting and praying, saying, oh God, I'm 80 years old. How do you want me to finish my life? What can I do for you? I want to honor you with my, he's not doing any of that. He may have been praying. I'm sure there's a sense of honoring God, probably going to the worship rhythms that he was going through. But there was no sense of Moses thinking he had some glorious finish to his run at 80. He's probably looking at his coast off, take care of the family, take care of the flock, coast off into glory. And then this bush ignites up, this Rubus Sanctus. Here's the miracle of Exodus 3 story. The miracle in the text there isn't that the bush wasn't consumed by the fire. Do you see that said? The bush wasn't burned up. If you've not lit a Rubus Sanctus on fire before, guess what you do if you lit it on fire? It would burn really fast, and it would burn white hot, and then it would turn into some ashes. The bush would be consumed by the fire. The uniqueness in Exodus 3 is this is the kind of fire that didn't need the Rubus Sanctus for fuel. The miracle of Exodus 3 is the fuelless fire. The picture of Moses' life that we're going to see in these weeks ahead is what happens when God lights a man on fire. When he strikes a match in the core of their being and ignites something in here, when there's a fuelless fire burning white hot that doesn't need your Rubus Sanctus for fuel. That's why any old Rubus Sanctus will do. Any old plant will do. It doesn't matter. It's not about you and me. It's about the fuelless fire. That's why he can take a nobody and do something like this with Moses' life. A sheep herder in complete obscurity at 80 years old, the least likely candidate to ever show up in God's Hall of Fame story that he's writing. How about he just picks Moses? And have you noticed this with the character of God as you read through the scriptures? He doesn't pick the, right? Round one draft pick is not high on God's list. He's looking for the free agents. He's looking for the walk-ons. He's looking for the cast-asides, the nobodies, the forgottens. Why? Because he says, I know this. It's not going to be about their Rubus Sanctus. First one draft picks are kind of enamored with their Rubus Sanctus. And they can get a little bit, taking a little bit too much of the credit and the glory for what I bring to the story. God's like, I got a better idea. I'm going to pick all of those 
all those shrubs out there who know they've got nothing to bring to this story and I'm going to ignite something in their heart and that's going to burn white hot. Because if it's dependent on, I mean, this twig here, smoldering ember at best. But if it's about to fuel this fire that he ignites in there, boy, that thing can burn and burn and burn. And I think this is the connection, gang, to perseverance and endurance in walking with God and serving his purposes in a broken world. How are we going to stay with our hands to the plow in the midst of all that's unraveling in our world and say, God, here I am, use me however you want to use. How do we stay engaged in his mission in the world? You know what the key to all that is? The journey inward has to precede the journey outward. To say it this way, I, I put it in my notes this way, doing things for God, here's what I put, doing things for God starts with a fire from God. If you just run off and do a whole bunch of stuff for God without any fire from God, guess what's going to happen? It's going to be a flash in the pan, it's going to start out quick, and it's going to fade fast. Here's, a little, here's, a, here's some markers when someone's doing a bunch of stuff for God with no fire from God. Quick to quit when times get tough. It could be simple things. It could be just like a, you know, a new commitment like, God, I'm, I'm back. I'm all in. I'm coming back to church. I'm going to start reading my Bible. I'm going to start leading my family spiritually. I'm going to start making a difference for you in this world. I'm going to start stepping up and stepping out. If all of those things, which all sound like good things, if there's no journey inward, if there's no fuelistic fire ignited in here, there's going to be no perseverance and no endurance on all those things when times get tough, when the sledding gets rough, when it gets a little complicated and difficult and messy, we're Balin, we're going to be quick to quit. I think that's a marker of getting it a little mixed up here. And here's what we're going to see with Moses. You're like, Moses is going to try to bail multiple times in this story. Do you know why he can't bail? Because there's a fuelless fire burning in his heart. And it's not Moses dependent. So Moses, go ahead, try to quit. You can't quit. That's someone who's going to endure. This is how Erwin McManus put it in, I put this quote in your notes. When God has your heart, you can trust your desires. His will is not a map, it is a match. He shows you the way by setting you on fire. You will know God's desire for you by the fire in you. The fire in you will light the way. Oh, that's so good. And so I crafted a little prayer years ago through this storyline. Here's my prayer. I whisper it periodically, Lord, light a fire in my heart that doesn't need me for fuel. Lord, light a fire in my heart that doesn't need me for fuel. And that's the first window we get into this 80-year-old man, Moses, who's gonna bear more spiritual fruit in this last season of his life than all the previous 80 years. How? Because it's not about his rubus sanctus. It's about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who's going to ignite something. It's going to be about the match inside of him, and that light is going to light the way. Listen to what the Lord continues to say now. Verse 7, the Lord says, see if this sounds familiar, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I want you to underline, I have indeed seen. Underline next, I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. Underline, I am concerned about their suffering. 
Verse eight, so I have come down to rescue. So look, those first two verses. I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, I have come down to rescue from the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So you get the picture here? God says, I hear, I see, I'm concerned, I'm ready to step in and do something about it. You're like, hey, man, we hear that. All right, Lord, amen, let's go, God. We're all there, yes, yes, Lord. Verse 10, keep going. So now, go, I am sending you to Pharaoh. Whoa, wait, 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 Lord. I really wanna amen the fact that you have seen, you have heard, you are concerned, and you're stepping in. We're all, yes, Lord, wait a minute. So the plan is, now you, so Moses, 80 years old, with your cane, with your tired physical body, with the rubus sanctus that you think is so fading away, guess what? I pick you. You're going to go to Pharaoh. By the way, Pharaoh in the story, king of Egypt, not Yahweh fearing, not reverent towards the ways of Yah, not interested in carrying out what Moses is going to bring him. He's not going to bring him a plan that the king of Egypt's going to go, well, that's a really good idea. Moses knows this is going to be really difficult conversation. It's like, hey, so now go, I am sending you. Here's the principle, first principle, like when God ignites a person on fire, here's what you're gonna see with God. The primary way God gets stuff done in this world is through his people. This is how God works in the world. It's not the only way, hear me, it's the primary way God chooses to get his work done in the world. He says, I pick you. I'm gonna do something about this. God says, I hear, I'm concerned, I'm burdened about, I'm gonna step in. How? I pick you. I pick you to do this. And I think this is the stage when we, as his people, grasp this. We get the taste of the dignity of responsibility. Do you remember the first time in your life you experienced the dignity of responsibility? I remember it like it was yesterday. I was like nine or 10 years old. My grandpa Long says to me, Eric, tomorrow, do you wanna go cut some wood with me in the pasture? I mean, I just, are you kidding me? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you understand, my grandpa, and that'd be the equivalent of like, like Peyton Manning saying, hey, you wanna go out back and throw the ball around a little bit? Or like Chip and Joanna Gaines saying to some of you guys, hey, you want to go check out the antique mall down the road? That's like my grandpa Long saying to me, do you want to go out and cut wood with me at nine or 10? That meant we were probably going to wake up before the sunset and drink coffee. That meant I was going to have to slide on some long sleeves because that wood's gonna cut up those forearms. That meant I was gonna put on some leather gloves, like grandpa's leather gloves, or like catcher's mitts on me, you know? That meant I was gonna go and I was gonna participate in what? And we did rise early and we got in the front of his green pickup truck, that green Chevy truck, and guess what I did? I could barely see over the dash. I'm a dash right there. I cranked that window down. You know what I did? I flopped my hand out there, right? like a good old working man, right, my grandpa's hand. My grandpa was a carpenter. 
man's man. He had forearms like Popeye. I mean, huge. And he had like calluses on every knuckle the size of quarters. You following me? In grandpa's vocabulary was never we can't. It was always we will. No matter what the job was, if something was going on, grandpa's going to enter it and is going to get the job done and going to fix it and going to find a way. It was that grandpa. And he says, you want to go out in the forest and cut some wood with me? Load up the chainsaws, get in the pickup truck, roll down the window, flop my arm out there because grandpa had his arm out, you know, rolling. And it was hot. The sun was beating down. Flies were everywhere. He's firing up the chainsaw. He knew you knew it, me at nine and 10. He's like, he's not gonna hand me the chainsaw. The dignity of responsibility also had some appropriate boundaries there, but I was gonna pick up the sticks. I was gonna haul the wood. I was gonna load the truck. And I was sweating and the flies were all over me and the, and the sawdust was sticking to me and it felt amazing. And we got that truck all loaded up. And that's when grandpa said to me, Eric, you ready to pull this truck on out of here? What? I couldn't reach the pedals. And he climbed into the passenger seat and he said, come on here, sit on my lap. Stick the keys in that ignition. Turn it on. Put it in drive. And drive us on out of here. I woke up that morning maybe four foot, two inches tall. I went to bed that night feeling seven feet tall. Because my grandpa Long gave me the dignity of responsibility. Do you know that's what God the Father does with all of his children? Do you know the Father looks at our world? Do, Do you think there's anything going on in our world that might need some engagement of the kingdom of God to enter into? Just stretch yourself a little bit here. Is there anything going on as you scroll through the news feed every week, you go, God, do you hear what's going on here? North Korea, Iran, Las Vegas, our own social justice issues in our own country, our own leadership challenges all around. God, do you see what's going on? Do you hear the cries of your people? Are you concerned about this? Are you going to step in and do something? Anybody been praying some of those prayers? God, when are you going to step in and do something? And you know, right on the heels of that, I think the voice of the Lord is Exodus 3, verse 10. Yep, I am. I hear the cries of my people. I'm concerned about what's going on here. I'm willing to step in. I'm ready to step in. And guess what? So now go, I send you. Because I give you the dignity of responsibility to join me. Think of all the ways God could choose to get his work done in this world. Now we can argue with the wisdom of this plan all we want. Because some of you go, oh, man, God, really? You choose to use us? The Rubus Sanctus, like all of us, yep. God, that's what he chooses to do. And do you see, that's how he's going to, that's how he's been doing it. That's how he's going to do it until Jesus returned. This is how his work is going to get done in this world. So practically, God hears the cries, right, of some children who are bound up in sex trafficking. He's concerned about what's going on there. So you know what he does? He Mary Shum, I pick you. And a whole host of others of you getting ready to go to Kenya, I pick you. Or God's burdened about what's going on in the inner cities of our world. Inner city Indianapolis, he's burdened about the broken down neighborhoods that are going on there. Guess what God says? Allie King, 
Danny Marquez, I pick you. Or God hears the cries of parents with wayward teenagers and teenagers bound up in cycles of addiction at the end of their rope have no idea how they're going to see some things turn around. He hears their cries and you know what he says? Dave and Don Rose, I pick you. Or God looks at the boatloads of refugees coming on the shores of Sicily from North Africa. He hears the cries for help. He's concerned about what's happening there. He's burdened about their spiritual destiny. He's burdened about the physical realities those families are entering into. So you know what he says? Paul and Kate Keller, I pick you. And this is how God gives his people the dignity of responsibility. And he ignites a fuelless fire in the heart. And those rubus sanctus enter out into the mission of this world and say, God, build your kingdom right here, right now. That's the primary way he gets his stuff done in this world. And that's what we see and we'll continue to see with Moses' life. And so I close with just a simple question today for me and for you. Where is the contact point? Where's the contact point these days between the work of God in you and the brokenness of the world around you? That intersection is the dignity of responsibility. Some of you have been brought into a front row seat on some stuff in this world that absolutely, fundamentally needs to change. And today, you're going to hear a whisper from his spirit says, I pick you. Now roll up your sleeves and get engaged. And remember, it better be the fuelless fire that's igniting and carrying that. Because otherwise, it's going to be a flash in the pan. We're going to just start something and it's never going to be carried through. But if the fire of God has been lit and there's a burden and the intersection, the dignity of responsibility, and you step into it, you'll be just like Moses. You won't be able to quit. Because it's not about what you or I bring to the story. It's about him, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who said, I hear the cries of my people. I'm gonna get them out of Egypt. I'm gonna get them to their promised land. I'm gonna get that done. Moses, I pick you. Let's go. And perhaps today, that's the whisper you hear. So in your notes, I left you with a little essay. And I know the font is so small, you'll need a little reading magnifying glass. It's okay. Take it home. It's an essay that I found years ago that kind of challenges sometimes the default response to that whisper we hear from the Lord when the Lord says, I pick you. And sometimes we struggle with being able to just jump all in and say yes. And I think that, for me, that little essay probes the right things. And as we'll see in the weeks ahead, Moses struggled also saying yes. It's okay to struggle with saying yes, but when the fire's ignited, there won't really be an ability to quit at the core of your being. You'll have to stay engaged, and the mission will get carried forward. Let's pray together. Jesus, a simple prayer this morning is that you would ignite a fire in each of our hearts that doesn't need us for fuel, that you'd pour it out 
that these would be burning bush type moments for us. There's some in this room right now and maybe, there's, maybe they've been strolling by a bush that's been on fire but today they hear your voice calling out their name and they stop and they look. And God, would you just thank you that you are the kind of God as a father that blesses your children with the dignity of responsibility. So no matter what decade of our life we're in, may you move us to that place where on the front end we'll say, yes, Lord, even if we don't see where that yes is gonna lead. Pour out your spirit for our world today that is crying out. May you find your people faithful to engage and enter that brokenness in the name of Jesus by the power of your spirit. We ask it in Christ's name.